0: First Peter five one, it says, Peter writes. Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder, elder, and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. And not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble." Have you ever wondered wondered about how we as a church should go about finding leaders for this church? Have Have you questioned whether the Bible prescribes how leaders are to be chosen? Have you thought about the kind of leaders we need to lead us in a healthy direction? I would submit to you that the identification of church leadership, church leaders, is among the most important tasks of the church. Today, many church leaders are chosen on the basis of charisma, on the basis of personality and intelligence, which, by the way, is much the same criteria the world uses to choose its stars. By and large... The church spends precious little time considering and praying for the, God, for the godly leaders whom God would choose. And many t- churches, and m- most churches I would submit, more time is spent discussing less important topics. Maybe such as the location that they're going to meet, or or the music type that they're going to partake in. More time is spent on those things, on peripheral things, than prayerfully seeking God to show us godly men, or raise up godly men, to lead us. Should we be surprised then when the church struggles? When the church struggles to maintain her focus? Now, this is not a problem that is confined to our own day. Listen to this quote by the early church father, Jerome. He says this, Many, church, many build churches nowadays, their walls and pillars of glowing marble, their ceilings glittering with gold, their altars studded with jewels. Yet to the choice of Christ's ministers, no heed is paid." Quote. Now during these past few weeks, we have been looking at what we have called our foundations of grace. More specifically, over the past few weeks, we've been studying our biblical philosophy of ministry. We, said another way, have looked at what the Bible has to say about how the church is to function. We have seen that, it is. I hope that we have seen that it is important that we function as the Lord would have us to function. And if we function this way, if we function as the Lord intends, then we, we have to know what He desires for us. Therefore, we invested four sermons the, these past four weeks, these past four sermons that I preached, that is, establishing what the Bible teaches concerning the function of the church. And we have applied that, those functions to Grace Bible Church. We established, then, four commitments, which form the, the philosophy of ministry pillars, form the basis of our philosophy of ministry, said another way. These are the commitment to the exaltation of God, the commitment to expository preaching, the commitment to equipping the saints, and the commitment to evangelizing the lost. We believe that these four commitments form a biblical philosophy of ministry for Grace Bible Church, and really for any biblical church. Now, we believe that these pillars will help us set a biblical direction for Grace Bible Church. With these pillars we can carefully evaluate ministry opportunities and we'll have a standard of evaluation when we are asked to assess a potential ministry direction and believe me those are coming those those opportunities of of direction that we can we we will be that will be brought to us and we can we can evaluate those based on the standard of our philosophy of ministry my hope is that you will continue to Familiarize yourself with our ministry commitments so that you will better understand our ministry and will be able to personally commit to the purpose and the direction of Grace Bible Church so that we can all be on the same page pulling in the same direction. My prayer is that the church will persevere in these commitments until the Lord's return. Now, switching gears. Over these next few weeks, we'll continue to look at what we've called our foundations of grace. We, but we'll switch gears and look at our Lord's intent for governing the church. I want you to recognize that our understanding of church polity or church government is just as important as our philosophy of ministry, maybe even more so. Maybe even more so. The church needs men who will ensure that we are doing what the Lord requires of us. Let me me give another adjective here. We need godly men who will do what the Lord requires of us. In other words, we need leaders who are enraptured by the Lord Jesus and will follow Him wherever He leads, while realizing that He will always lead us according to His word. Did you get that? We'll follow Him wherever He leads. But we realize that He will always be consistent with His own word. The Lord Jesus is our great shepherd. He died for you and me. He purchased the church. He purchased this church. But He purchased the church with His own blood at the cross. But He has given the church to under-shepherds who follow Him in suffering and who labor in His name, leading His church. And it's catastrophic when these men fail to follow Christ. And it happens, right? We see ungodly men who, who are leading the church, who are not following Christ, who are not suffering for His name, who are not laboring in His name. They're laboring for their own acclaim. Now you could say it is, it is catastrophic when they fail to follow Christ, but you could say that as her leaders fail, the church fails. As her leaders fail, the church fails. Not that it could ever truly fail, because the Lord will always raise up men who will follow Him, right? As John MacArthur puts it, the church, as representative uh, and emblematic of the kingdom of God in the world today, must have quality leadership. And the blight on the church, and the reason for so many of the problems in churches around the world, is that we do not, in all cases, we do not have, in all cases, the kind of leadership that the Word of God demands the church to have. In other words, in other words, the church is not committed to a godly leadership. We're committed, in in many cases, to having charismatic men, meaning that they have big personalities. They seem to be gifted in in speaking. But, at the, but the, at the same time, they're not godly men according to the Word of God. At Grace Bible Church, we want, we want to be committed, committed, that is, to having the kind of leadership that God demands the church to have. Therefore, at Grace Bible Church, we are committed to a biblical model of eldership we believe the Bible then teaches four crucial aspects of a biblical eldership. Now, we'll see these over the next few weeks. We'll see these over the next few weeks. What we're going to see is, is that we're going to see first, today, we're going to see the characterization of a biblical eldership. And then over the next two to three weeks, we're going to see, secondly, the call of the elder. Thirdly, we're going to see the charge to the elder. And fourthly, we're going to see the of of the elder. That's four C's. The characterization of biblical eldership, the call actually to biblical eldership, the charge to the biblical eldership, and the character of the biblical eldership. Now, today we're just going to look at the first one. We're going to look at the characterization of biblical eldership. In other words, we're going to define it. We're going to define biblical eldership and what what the Bible has to say about how this church should be led. You've got it in your notes you see that it says that biblical elders then are overseers by description. They are shepherds at heart. They are spiritually mature, and they are a plurality by God's plan. I may have that out of order from your from your notes, but you get the picture. So let's look first at at the character. the character of the elder I'm sorry the 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 um characteriza- characterization of the biblical eldership my has got messed up but that's okay I'll I'll work through it first they're shepherds at heart first they're shepherds at heart give me a second here to yeah that's right now we're going to as i said we're going to look at these points over the next few over the next few weeks but in a in a few minutes we're going to look at some various passages two in particular that I will help I help I believe will help us characterize a properly functioning biblical eldership these pa- passages I believe will perfectly encapsulate what it means to be an elder and, and what it means to function as an elder team now before we look at the biblical basis for eldership, I want to look at some popular models of church government. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at, at what others have done in the church historically. And what we, if we look across uh, Christianity now, if we look across uh, what the world sees as Christianity, that is, we're going to see these different models of church government. Now I'll try to do this quickly. Now, this exercise should help you understand each form and hopefully help you see the wisdom of the biblical model of church government. So, there are three forms of church government, three main forms. The first is called the Episcopal episcopal form of government. This type of church government believes that authority resides in the office of the bishop. They believe that the bishop is distinct from the elder and all and is over all other church officers. They see a, a clear distinction then in the Greek term episkopos, which is translated as overseer in the NASB and the ESV, the, the New American Standard, that is, and the English Standard Version. But this, this word episkopos has been translated bishop in the King James Version and the New King James Version. Therefore, those who hold for, to this episcopal form of government, church government, They see the bishops as rulers of the church, forming a hierarchy of authority within the church. Some examples of this form of government are the Roman Catholic Church. In the Roman Catholic Church, the bishop of Rome, or the pope, has authority over all other bishops and church officials and is seen as the the supreme ruler of the church. The pope of the Roman Catholic Church is seen as infallible in certain situations. As the Victor of Christ, so he's the he's the Bishop of Rome, and he's over the entire church. And there are other bishops that form a hierarchy underneath the the Pope. The Eastern Orthodox Church is similarly ruled, but differs in that they don't have a Pope. They have the bishops, and they have the hierarchy of of, of the the bishops. But they and these hierarchy this this these bishops are in these various regions and they have equal authority. It's called the federated view of the episcopate. But it's the same idea that they have these bishops that are ruling over the church. The Anglican Church, or the Church of England, has the Archbishop of Canterbury. I know you, I'm know i sure you've heard of the Archbishop of Canterbury. He's the religious head of the Church of England. He has no formal authority outside of that jurisdiction, but is recognized as the symbolic head of the worldwide communion. Unlike the Roman Catholic Church, they don't have a pope. Again, similar to the Eastern Orthodox Church, and they don't believe that their leaders are infallible at all. Now, really quickly, with the Pope, they believe that in some cases he's infallible, but they don't believe he's sinless. So there's a there's a distinction there. But still, that they believe it, it, that when he speaks as the uh, he speaks in the name of Christ, that he's infallible. Now, as we continue as you continue our study, you'll see that this form of, of church, this Episcopal form of government, that is, has no real biblical support. I believe, or we believe, that this form of government misappropriates the, the authority given by Christ to the church in Matthew 16:18 and 19. Remember, that's where, where Christ said to Peter that, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or Hades, shall not prevail against it. Then he says in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom, or of heaven that is, of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So, so at that point, Christ gave authority. Now we would say, here, we would say he gave authority to the congregation of the church, that, that ultimately the, the authority lies within the congregation through the elders but according to the Episcopal form of government, that authority was given to Peter and is handed down from Peter down to the bishops. In the case of the Roman Catholic Church, they think that Peter is the first pope or believe that Peter was the first bishop of Rome. Now, we also believe then that this concept of government erroneously divides the, the the idea of the episkopos or the uh, overseer from the other biblical descriptions of the same office. Now, we'll see that in a moment. We'll see that there are three words, and we'll get into it in a moment, but we'll see that there are three words that are used in the New Testament to describe the elder. And we believe that they're describing different facets of the same office. But what they do is they, they divide the two, and they say that the overseer is something different than the elder. And so, therefore, that they say that, or believed that Christ gave the authority to the bishops. Now, the second form of church government is the Presbyterian form of government. Presbyterian. In Presbyterian churches, the authority is within the rule of assemblies of elders or presbyters. Each local church is governed by a body of elected elders, usually called a session or a consist- consistatory though other terms such as church board or even courts may apply. Now, these groups of local churches, there's groups of local churches, they're governed by a higher assembly of elders known as the presbytery or the, or the classes. These presbyteries are, can be d- grouped into a synod, and the synods nationwide often, often gather together into a general assembly. Now, Specific roles in church services are reserved for an ordained minister or a pastor known as the teaching elder, or a minister of the word and sacrament. Now, the idea then of, of a connection between local churches is the main takeaway of this form of church government. The Presbyterians use Acts 15, or the Jerusalem Council. You, you see in Acts 15 where they came to the Jerusalem Council and they came together They they use that as their model for the church coming together under a common rule. Although each church is ruled by its own assembly or its assembly of presbyters in day-to-day matters. So they have their elder board that rules the church, the local church in day-to-day matters, but they come together in in a higher form together to rule the overall church. Listen to what Wayne Grudem has to say about this form of government. He says this, Nowhere in Scripture do elders have regularly established authority over more than their local church. He goes on to say, There is no New Testament pattern for elders exercising authority over any other than their own local churches. In the Presbyterian church, the effective power in church government seems to be, in practice, too far removed from the final control of the lay people of the church. End quote. What, what Wayne Grudem has to say about the Presbyterian form of government, church government. Now, the third type of church government is where we fall, the congregational church government. Now, before you throw stones at me, uh, that doesn't mean we're congregational ruled. Some people would say that, that when you hear congregational, oh, wait a minute, well, congregational rule meaning that it's a democracy in In congregational churches, the authority resides with the local church so so we rule ourselves ultimately uh, under the under the word of God, under the guidance of the word of god so the 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 church is autonomous and not accountable to any other church or government governing body we', we're, we're, we, we again the authority lies within this body. Now there are several forms of congregational churches some some have no government. Some, basically, they they have no structure, and they believe that structure is is uh, unspiritual or contradicting the priesthood of all believers. Now, for, now clearly, this form of congregationalism finds no support in the New Testament, because we have we have clear examples in the New Testament of the authority lying in the hands of the men, the 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 elders. Now, some of these churches are a pure democracy. I mentioned that. We see that in some Baptist churches. In these churches, all decisions are made by the congregation in a democratic manner. They may utilize committees to deliberate matters before they're brought to the entire congregation for a vote. Again, this, this form of congregationalism finds little support because it doesn't account for the many passages which depict the church as being ruled by elders. Now, some churches and some congregational churches are, are under the authority of a single elder. Uh, the, the congregation elects an elder or a pastor whose authority can vary from church to church. In some cases, the single elder possesses full authority. Now, there seems to be, there seems to be biblically some support for this model. Some offer James as an example of a, the single elder leadership within the Church of Jerusalem. So James was the, the, this, this, the one who led and had the authority at the Church of Jerusalem, according to those who support this model. The letters to the churches in Revelation, Revelation that is, 2 and 3 are addressed to the angel of the church. If you look at that, it says to the angel of the church. And some people take that to be to believe that that's the head pastor. And so they take this and and they believe that then that there's a head pastor that has the authority in the church, that he's responsible. Now, we'll look at this further, but it doesn't seem to be the correct model based on the many passages which refer to multiple elders in individual churches. Now, there are two other forms of congregational churches and they're very closely related, very closely related, which I'll mention now, but will further develop as we progress into this series. The first one is, uh, m- multiple elder led, but congregational authority. So, in these churches, elders are viewed as leaders in doctrine and, and leaders in, in example and making decisions. But the final authority is, is in choosing the leaders and deciding on important matters resides with the congregation. So it's the elders that lead day to day. They lead in doctrine. They lead in other ways in, in, in terms of the church and the function of the church. But it's the congregation who makes the final decisions. And then there's a, a, second, a second form that we'll discuss as we develop this series. It's called multiple elder rule. In multiple elder rule, final authority in all matters, including the choosing of elders, Including the ruling the church, the final decision lies with the elders and not the congregation. So now we now that we've looked at these typical models of church government, we need to look at how the Bible characterizes biblical church government. So we looked at what what we see. If we look across Christianity and even into the the Roman Catholic Church, what we see is is these different types of of government. Now let's look at what the Bible has to say about church polity or, or church governing governance. Now we believe that the word of God clearly shows us how the church is to be ruled. We believe that it's not a it's not a mystery. It's we have to put some we have to put some things together, but it's not a, it's certainly not a mystery. And so we're going to characterize the the biblical eldership. Now, First we're going to look, let's look at the first point. So we're going to characterize a biblical eldership. Let's look at the first point. Biblical elders are shepherds, are shepherds at heart. Now, first this is first and foremost, put very, very simply, if a man is not a shepherd, if a man is not a shepherd, then he's not an elder. If he's not a shepherd at heart, he's not an elder. God is, has made the elder to love and care for the sheep, just as, he loves and, and just as he loves Christ, and just as Christ Himself loves and cares for the sheep. And you about if we've already you probably are already there in, in 1 Peter 5 1. Uh, we've seen and, and we'll continue, we'll look into further uh, what, what Peter, or Peter's heart for Christ and for his and his heart for the sheep. In 1 Peter 5, 1, it says, Therefore, I, this Peter, Peter speaking, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. Now, the word that he's used here for elder is presbyteros. Now, I've told you there are three different words in the New Testament used for those who have charge over God's people. As, as we'll see, and as I've said before, these three different words Used have a have different or, or speak to different aspects of the same office. Therefore, we understand all of them to be the description of the elder. Now, here Peter uses presbutoros, which could be translated as one being relatively advanced in age or older. Now, we'll get more into this meaning of the word or the meaning of the word in a, of this word in a minute. But I want you to look at the text. Peter said, Peter. It says that Peter exhorts the elders. In other words, he strongly urges them. He he appeals to them as their fellow elder. Now, now this is amazing when you think that Peter, Peter had been with Jesus throughout his entire earthly ministry. He served alongside Christ. He was or is an apostle of Christ. Yet I want you to notice that he appeals to them as what? As a as a fellow elder. As a fellow elder. That's a, If you think about it, he had been a witness of the sufferings of Christ. You go even further, he was on top of the mountain when Jesus was transfigured before him. He saw the glorified Lord. Yet he appeals to them based on being an elder. He is simply one of them. Uh, we should see great humility in, in this statement. And this is the type of humility we should see in true elders, those who would lead God's flock. We should see this type of humility, and it's on this basis, the basis of being a, to being a fellow elder, that Peter says this: "Shepherd the flock of God among you." Now let's stop there. Peter exhorts the elders to shepherd the people. Now we want to look further into what it means to this the meaning of this word translated shepherd. A shepherd was a was a common occupation in in ancient in the ancient Mediterranean. They were responsible for leading and feeding leading feeding and protecting their flock and they were also responsible for ensuring rest for their flock. Now this term is used metaphorically in the Bible to describe those, the job of those who are placed in charge of God's people. I mean, the word is even used of God Himself. Shepherding, then, shepherding was seen as a lowly occupation in that world. Aristotle spoke negatively of, of the shepherd, writing that among men, the laziest are the shepherds, who lead an idle life and get their subsistence, subsistence, subsistence that is, without trouble from tame animals. They're, Flocks wandering from place to place in search of pastor. They are compelled to follow them, cultivating a sort of living farm. But it shouldn't be surprising to us, though, that God would use the metaphor of shepherd when it comes to, to uh, His leaders, when it comes to even His shepherding His people. Just as real shepherds were to lead and feed and protect God's God's people, God's shepherds of the people should be the same, should do the same thing. Listen to Alexander Straug. He says this If we want to understand Christian elders and their work, we must understand the biblical imagery of shepherding. As keepers of sheep, New Testament elders are to protect, feed, lead, and care for the flock's many practical needs end quote the, the shepherd then, the shepherd then must be able to lead God's people, protecting them from the dangers which lurk everywhere. They must have a heart they must have a heart for that. They must have a heart for their people to to look uh, for, to look out for their people, to to protect their people, to be willing to go and, and, and bring back the one who's wandering. The shepherd must be a teacher. He must be a teacher. He's one that feeds the people. He must be a teacher of God's people. This is the reason that Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 that the elder must be able to teach. Therefore, if, if, the man, if a man is unwilling to protect the sheep, if he is unwilling to fight off the wolves, if he's unwilling to refute those who contradict, then he cannot be an elder cannot be an elder. If he is unable to feed God's people with the word of God, then he is not again able to be an elder. The elder must be able to feed and 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 protect the the sheep. Now just like the literal shepherd, the elder must be gentle among the flock. Must be gentle. It's not as if it's not as if he can be he can be uh hard on the flock that is. But he must be able to show great ferocity when dealing with those who contradict. It is very interesting that Peter exhorts the elders in this way, right? Because he himself was exhorted by Christ in much the same way. If you turn to John 21... because this passage in John 21 is set after the death and resurrection of the Lord. As you may recall, Peter had denied Jesus 3 times during his during his earthly tri- or his trials, during Jesus's trials. And just as Jesus had said would happen. He said, you will deny me 3 times. No doubt after denying his Lord, Peter thinks that he's an utter failure. I mean, he's he thinks that he has failed his Lord, and he has. He must, he must even believe that Christ is done with him. How could he ever be used after vehemently denying him as he had done? Now, let's pick up the story in 21.2. It says that, that Simon Peter and, and the others, uh, and two other of the disciples, were, were together, with, with, together and, and Simon Peter says to them in verse 3, I'm going fishing. And they said, And we'll come with you also. And they went out and got in the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Now, they thought, they thought that their ministry was over. Their Lord was, had, was gone. And they, so they, they were returning to their former lives. And so Peter says, I'm going fishing. They went back to their old way, old way of life. But I want you to notice that they're not having any success. It had to be frustrating to them. Now, I want you to also notice something else, that Peter was their leader. When Peter said he wa- whether he wanted to be or not, he was their leader. Now, when Pete, so when Peter said he was going fishing, the others did the same. They just followed him. The question is, how would you rate his leadership at this juncture? Not not very good, right? Not, not be- pretty poor. Verse four, it says, "When the day was breaking, so they had been out all night fishing. The day was breaking. Jesus stood on the bit bi- beach, yet." the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And, and he says to them, You do not have any fish. And they answered him, No. And he says, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, verse 7, the, that disciple whom Jesus loved, that would be John, said to Peter, It is the Lord. And so Peter heard that it was the Lord, and he put, on his, outer, put, on, put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. And then he goes on and it talks about how the Lord had uh, started a fire. And the, the fire was there and, and had fish already laid on it and placed and bred. And Jesus said, bring, and verse 10, bring some fish which you have now caught. <coughs> and Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land full of large fish. And there were 153, although there were so many, the net was not torn. He said, and the Lord said, come and have breakfast. And the disciples said, Well, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Or none of the disciples said ventured to question them, Who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? And then it says in, in verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said, said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my lambs. Verse 16. He said, him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. See this episode mirrors Peter's recent threefold denial of Christ, of the Lord. That that event must have been so painful to him that even the memory of the fire must have been imprinted in his mind. He was over a fire when he had denied the Lord, and and we see that that surely that Peter must have wondered why the Lord would choose to start a fire with that memory burning his mind. But thankfully, Peter. Thankfully, for Peter's sake, this fire did not represent. Jesus's re- rejection of Peter, right? Peter had rejected him over the fire, but it was his gracious invitation for Peter to reserve those denials and affirm his love for Christ. Reverse that is, reverse those denials and 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 affirm his love for Jesus. And in doing so, Jesus commissions Peter to serve as the shepherd as a shepherd of the flock. In other words, Jesus exhorts Peter to shepherd his people. In other words, Jesus calls Peter to be the Pope, right? No. No. He called him to be an elder. Which is a much higher calling than the Pope. And he did, and he did just as Peter will later do in 1 Peter 5. You know, this brings to mind that Jesus is not looking for perfect men to shepherd His people. He's looking for men who love Him and desire to please Him. And who love His people and desire to shepherd them. Now Jesus goes on to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you to where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had said this, he said to him, this is important, follow me. In other words, Jesus demanded that Peter follow him in giving his life to shepherd the flock of God. This is the life that Jesus had called Peter to, and it is the life that all elders are called to. You see, Jesus gave Peter another chance to serve Him graciously. And Peter gladly submitted to his Lord's will and he voluntarily followed Him. Now if you turn back to 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says, verse 2, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for... Sorted gain, but with eagerness, nor as yet nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. In other words, in other words, Peter says that the shepherd's motivation must be to eagerly serve God according to his will. He must not shepherd God's people for the sake of sordid gain. Said another way, they must not have any fondness for dishonest gain or greedy. The true shepherd does not shepherd the flock for the sake of fleecing them. This is a far cry from being the first pope, right? doesn't mean that he won't be supported in the ministry, but that money and power are not his main motivation. Woe to those men whose motivation is dishonest gain. Woe to them. Obviously, our minds probably go to people who preach the prosperity gospel. Men who make it their aim to take money from the most vulnerable. Men like Joel Osteen and Creflo Dollar and Benny Hen. They're wolves in shepherd's clothing. But they're not godly shepherds. And I hope that, that you won't have them in your mind as you think of what the godly shepherd is. A godly shepherd quietly feeds and leads and protects God's people. A, a, a godly shepherd loves the people of God. The godly shepherd it does it regardless of whether he gets paid. The godly shepherd desires to be pleasing to the Lord. And Peter goes on to say in 1 Peter 5, four, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You see, the the godly elder looks forward to that glorious day when the chief shepherd will appear knowing that he will receive the unfading crown of glory. He is motivated to shepherd God's people because of his love for Jesus and his desire to see God's people to be more like him. That is, more like Christ. That's his motivation. He hurts for his people and he labors to see Christ fully uh, formed in them. He knows that Jesus is not only the the chief shepherd, but also He's the good shepherd whom He serves and whom He loves and whom He follows. Just listen to John 10. Just listen as Jesus describes Himself in John 10, verse 11. He says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, is, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's the hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I laid my life down my life for the sheep. Beloved, beloved, he is the good shepherd. And he expects the elder to be a shepherd at heart. He expects the elder to do the same. He expects the elder to, lay, to be willing to lay down his life for the sheep. Well, we've seen the first point that biblical elders are shepherds at heart. Look at, let's look at the second point. Biblical elders are spiritually mature. Now, I mentioned earlier the word translated elder or elders in the New Testament is presbuteros. I also mentioned that in the the New Testament, again, that there are three different words. Now, as I've said, these three different words refer to different aspects of the same office. In our first point, we looked at the first word, the shepherd or the poimen, which is in Greek, poimen, used of the elder. Now, we're going to dig a little deeper into the second word, and looking at it, the, the word presbuteros. It could be translated, as I said earlier, as one being relatively, relatively advanced in age or, or, or older. Now, <clears throat> there doesn't seem to be an age requirement for the office of elder. Let me just say that. But we cannot dismiss that age could be a factor in selecting elders. While this word does not refer to a specific age level, it is used metaphorically to refer to the dignity of the office and the spiritual maturity of those who are elders. In other words, an elder is one who is spiritually mature. The office of elder, the office itself, is a dignified office. Therefore, therefore, we, we need to understand and look at the maturity of the man. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 3.6, that the overseer must not be a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Therefore, therefore, it would seem that sufficient time must pass for the man who would be an elder to be tested before he is to become an elder. We must understand that it is God's way then to test those whom he will use. As an example... God continually tested Abraham throughout his life by promising a son whom he didn't send for years. Then he commanded he was commanded to offer that son up as a sacrifice. James tells us that the testing of our faith produces endurance which in turn causes us to grow in spiritual maturity. Peter says in first peter one seven that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, your, fa- your faith, all of our faith, is found to be true through testing. It's God's way. Later in 1 Peter 4, it says this in 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. You see, God clearly tests His people, especially, especially the men who would lead His church. Especially the men who would lead His church. Therefore, the man who would be an elder must be tested. He must be a man who has gone through the flames and has shown been shown to be Proven to be the real thing. Now, in exceptional cases, this could be a young man. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. But we see, though, that Timothy was an exceptional man. An exceptional man, he had proven himself as he suffered alongside Paul. Yet Timothy, who had done so much to prove himself, had, had he had done so much to prove himself, struggled with timidity in the face of testing. In Second Tim or Second Timothy one five, it says, Paul says this: For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to Kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the, lay, through the laying on of hands. Of my hands, that is. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. But join me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. You see, Timothy seemed to be in danger of wavering in the face of great adversity. Now, we don't know if this is a, if this is a function of his youth, but it underscores the importance of a man being tested. When when the when the elder fails, when he falls, that is, there's great damage to, done to the church. So the man who would be an elder must be a tested man. He must be spiritual, shown to be spiritually mature. Spiritually mature. Now, we've seen that the elder must be a shepherd at heart. And the elder must be be spiritually mature. Let's look at the third point. Biblical elders are overseers by description. In 1 Timothy 3.1, Paul writes, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Paul uses the, the Greek word episkopos. So that's the third word we've talked about, which which in the, the New Testament is translated overseer or a bishop. This word comes out of the Greek culture. The Greeks used it to refer to an inspector or city administrator or finance manager. Now, some people think that the concept of overseer uh, came out of the Greek culture into the church, but that may not completely be the case. Now, you may have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. These scrolls were discovered near the Dead Sea, where a group of mon- monastic Jews, known as the Essenes, lived. This is uh, what is also called the Qumran community. You may have heard of the Qumran caves where the, the scrolls were found. Now, archaeologists have, have discovered that this group of people also had overseers, or episcopoi, uh, which is multiple overseers. Now, they, they used a, a Hebrew term to describe these leaders, but they were much the same as the overseers described by Paul in 1 Timothy 3. These men were preachers and teachers. They presided over the people, exercising care and authority. These men even carried out discipline within the congregation, similar to church discipline. They received alms or money from the people which they used to care for the community. So these people were shepherds of the people. They were overseers, but they were shepherds of the people. Therefore, it is likely then that the term overseer was somewhat, although somewhat, uh, somewhat uh, influenced by the Greek culture, we know that, that the, the Greek concept of overseer is too narrow. So, it's, so it came out of the Greek culture, the, the word did, but the concept is not broad enough to encompass its full biblical meaning. Therefore, it is likely that the fuller understanding that Paul would have had came from, the, from a Jewish context. You see, the Greeks used this term to refer to an administrator, whereas the Essenes used this term to, for a wide range of spiritual responsibility. Therefore, the overseer had responsibility to lead the people and teach the people. He received giving from the people. He, he judged accusations within the community, discerning them with wisdom. In other words, he had oversight over the people, and he was the shepherd of the people. Now, this is also the range of the, resp- of the responsibility of the biblical elder. Now, I want to pull all this together. So we're, we're close to being done today. I want to pull all this together. We've looked at three words which describe the elder. Uh, we've said that these three words describe different aspects of the office of elder. The word presbyteros emphasizes the spiritual maturity of the man. The word translated shepherd or pastor speaks of the duty to feed and lead and protect the sheep. The word translated overseers highlights the the, the, uh, the duty to administrate and supervise the people. Now, biblically, I submit to you that these all refer to the same office which is filled by the elder. Now, it would be helpful if we had an example of these words being used together in Scripture to see how this works. Now, we've already seen... 1 Peter 5 where Peter uses two of the terms elder and shepherd right he says i exhort you the elders among you to to shepherd the flock so we've seen the idea of of elder or pres or uh, uh, the the idea of presbyteros the elder being a shepherd but acts 20 is even clearer turn there set the stage in verse seventeen Paul sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church the elders of the church so he's he's brought them together he has them there with him and in verse twenty eight so it's chapter twenty verse twenty eight he says this <coughs> be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. So this is the elders he's speaking to. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. So what does that make you think of? Right, the shepherd. Among which the Holy Spirit has made you what? Overseers. Episcopos or episkopoi in the, in the plural. So we see the idea of the elder being a shepherd and being an overseer. To shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Clearly, then, Paul uses these terms interchangeably. He does, if you, if you look at Titus 1 5 through 9, he does the same thing where he tells Titus to appoint elders and then he calls them overseers as he gives their qualifications. So then, the elder, to pull all this together, the elder is to be a shepherd. And as such, the sheep will respond to him as their shepherd. The Lord said, my sheep will know me. And if he's made a man to be a shepherd, the sheep will know their shepherd. Beloved, you will know your shepherd. Shepherds, they are the ones who care for you. We also know that the elder is to be spiritually mature. They have... those who have proven themselves to be spiritually mature shepherds will be identified as overseers. Does that make sense? Those who, let me say that again, those who have proven themselves to be spiritually mature shepherds will be identified as overseers. If you haven't, if, if a man hasn't shown himself to be spiritually mature, if he hasn't, if he hasn't, been revealed to be a shepherd at heart, that he can't be an overseer. Now, before we close, let's look at one last crucial aspect of a biblical eldership. A biblical eldership is a plurality by God's plan. A plurality by God's plan. Put simply, we don't see examples of one elder ruling in the New Testament. I brought up James earlier, and I brought up the, the Revelation, letters in Revelation, but by and large, we see multiple elders in the church. In Acts 14.23, it says that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting. They commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We've already seen in Acts 20 where Paul sent for the Ephesian elders. In 1 Peter 5, we saw that Peter refers to multiple elders. James refers to multiple elders in James 5.14. The, the writer of Hebrews does, does the same thing in Hebrews 13.17. Mark Dever simply says this, the first thing to note in Scripture about past the pastors or elders of a local church is that they are plural. End quote. There are more than one. It's not We don't see an example of, of one elder. Now, we should see great wisdom in how our Lord has put this together. In the beginning of the sermon, I teased you with a question about how should we identify church leadership. According to God's plan, we must look for spiritually mature men who are shepherds at heart. They must clearly exhibit these qualities before they're given oversight in the church. And because no man exhibits the giftedness and the humility to serve in this capacity without great accountability... we must then have multiple overseers who are working together and shepherding the flock of God. Beloved, this is God's model for church leadership. Multiple godly shepherds who are spiritually mature, leading the flock of God. Now, as we close... Join me in praying. We're going to continue this series. We're going to continue this series, and we're going to continue to look at different aspects of, of, crucial aspects of biblical eldership. But join me in praying that God will raise up and reveal men like these here at Grace Bible Church Gainesville. If we want to be fully established as a church, if we want to be fully established as, here in Gainesville, then I believe in my heart that God will raise up men who will lead this church in a godly way. So join join me in praying for these men and praying that God would reveal them. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to You now and we pray that You would reveal those who You would have lead this church. We pray for godly men. We pray for men who are shepherds, who have a desire to lead and feed and protect. We pray for spiritually mature men who have been tested who have gone through the fire, Lord, who who have been shown to have, have true faith before You. Father, we pray that You would identify these type of men so that we might see them and understand them to be our elders. Lord, I pray that You would continue to give us more understanding. I pray that You would continue to help us see which direction, the direction that we should go. I pray again for men who would guide us and, and lead us according to our philosophy of ministry. We thank you for this opportunity to opportunity to take time to study, study the foundations of this church. Father, may we continue to be committed to them, to the pillars of of our philosophy of ministry. And again, may you raise up men who would lead us in that way, who are pleasing to you, who will say, I will follow you, Christ. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.